support for this Returns on Investment podcast comes from Wonder Capital, an easy way to invest in solar energy projects across the U.S. With Wonder, you help finance renewable energy and earn up to 7.5% a year. To learn more, visit wondercapital.com ROI. That's Wonder with a U. Wonder Capital. Invest in solar projects. Do well and do good. From Impact Alpha, this is Returns on Investment, a show about impact investing. I'm Brian Walsh, head of impact for the fintech company LiquidNet. Today on the show, we're featuring a conversation between David Bank, editor-in-chief of Impact Alpha, and Dave Chen, principal and chairman of Equilibrium Capital. Equilibrium has made a name for itself by creating investment strategies and products for institutional investors built around sustainability-driven real assets. Let's jump right into their conversation. Hello, I'm here with Dave Chen, the head of Equilibrium Capital. Dave's coming to us from Durham, North Carolina on a spring day. Uh, sounds like in a park, Dave. Yeah, I'm actually sitting in the, uh, the student plaza at uh, Duke University. Dave has been one of my great teachers as, in this journey around impact investing. And in particular, uh, Equilibrium and Dave have pioneered a lot of work with institutional investors, the big pension funds, sovereign wealth funds, the, the, what we sometimes call the super tankers of finance that control you know, trillions of dollars. And Dave has taught me about how those guys work. And uh, I'd love to get into a conversation, Dave, uh, and share that with uh, our listeners and our readers on Impact Alpha. So welcome to Returns on Investment. Hey, thank you for having me. Why are, you know, why have you been so keen and fixed on this institutional investor segment? Most folks in the impact investing world are, are courting all the, the high net worth individuals or the ultra high net worth individuals. Well, I, I think partly because it, it's, it's, if you believe that the kinds of sustainability and impact opportunities that we have or the challenges that we have are, quote unquote, of a planetary scale, then you're going to have to move large blocks of capital. And in our opinion, an observation starting about five or six years ago, we saw the major institutions uh, reframing this conversation and becoming the, the sources of capital that really were moving this marketplace. So it's the Willie Sutton theory of impact investing? Uh, yeah, I think that's, uh, you know, it's, it's probably not uh, a good thing for an investment manager to use the Willie Sutton uh, uh, quote, <laughs> but it, it, that is the gist okay. of it. <laughs> Keep that in my voice. But um, but you have uh, found that there's a shift. I mean, we used to we used to think of these guys as the most, you know, stodgy, risk averse, you know, last to move, you know, traditionalists. And, and you're thinking or at least you're finding some who are really becoming leaders. Yeah, and in fact, I would say that your insight is actually the correct one, and that is that most uh, of the institutions started down this path of sustainability uh, finance really from a downside uh, risk management side. One of our great teachers when we founded the firm was the Ontario Teachers Pension Plan and a risk manager there, uh, Deborah Ng. And one of the things that Deborah did, oh, well over 10 years ago, was ask a very fundamental question about the pension assets, and that was, what's the downside risk of climate change 
you know, what's the exposure across their $200 billion or so of pension assets? And then they conducted a, a couple of year study going through every one of their portfolios asking uh, if we in fact believe that within a measurable period of time that we had a risk exposure, number one, how big is it? And two, uh, are there ways of managing that risk? And then, and then a few years later, they asked the, the upside question, which is if, in fact, we fundamentally believe that we have to protect our portfolio from risk, what are the opportunities that, in fact, climate change uh, dictate that we actually get into as opposed to just get out of? Well, OK, that's, let's get to the, the, the upside. But it's interesting that you're saying it's first order decision is risk mitigation and sort of future proofing your portfolio because pension funds obviously have to pay out pensions, you know, to retirees. 10, 20, 30 years from now, right? Yeah, that's exactly the insight, I think, that has led many of these pensions down the, I'll call it phase one path, which is we're a long-term obligation, we're a long-term manager of capital and of assets, and therefore, within that horizon, what do we have to be aware of? Uh, You see the same thing happening in the last few years with New York Common and the work that they're doing with Mercer, same exact exercise. And then at the, the 2014 protocol enhancement at CalPERS was driven by the fact that CalPERS uh, took a step aside and asked themselves, hey, if we are in fact long-term asset holders with long-term asset obligations or payout obligations, again, that time horizon becomes critical. What do we have to do differently about our investment management approach if in fact we acknowledge that one of the very, very first things about our mandate is long-term. And I think that's what's really driven this initial phase one change, which is what's the downside? I remember that CalPERS uh, change, as you say, and if you look through those documents, I don't think they mention, they certainly don't mention impact. I don't think they even mention sustainability. They talk a lot about long-term. Exactly, exactly, exactly. And if you look at ERISA, the, uh, the ERISA clarification that came out a couple of years ago. For our listeners, ERISA is the law that governs big public pension funds. Thank you. And, and if you look at the ERISA clarification, you'll notice that it does not mention uh, climate change. It does, however, talk about long-term obligations, and it frames ESG as a set of risks and opportunities within the context of long-term. And that is that when you think long-term, do you consider E, S, and G, environmental, social, and governance, to be uh, risk indicators or quality indicators in the setting out of your strategy? And in effect, it, it determines that uh, you're well within your fiduciary guidelines to consider that because you're a long-term investor. Well, this is interesting. So that, that ERISA uh, guidance, as you said, tweaked the definition of so-called fiduciary duty for these big pension managers and what allowed them to consider, as you say, environmental, social and governance factors. They weren't allowed to, 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 to include that earlier and now they are? The, the technical writing of that ERISA was that it was a clarification. So they viewed it as a uh, detailed interpretation of existing requirements and regulations. And so now they now, but they are not yet required to consider environmental, social and governance factors. Uh, that that would be a, a, the next step, I imagine. 
It, it is, and I don't think that they. I think it was a very conscious decision on their part not to to, to cross into that. ERISA is very, very the government itself, but ERISA in particular is very loath to dictate what a investment protocol should be. What it is trying to do is broaden uh, what is considered to be within bounds of the fiduciary and the plan and and framed it as long term. And I, and I think that was a fundamental uh, shift in policy. Now, that at the time, people said, you know, that's the ring of the bell and this is going to be a unleash a flood of institutional capital. Has that happened? I think, frankly, it was happening already. And and if you look at it, large scale institutions have already been for a number of years looking at sustainability and uh, and also uh, natural resource uh, strategies that were in accordance with asset resilience. And this is my belief, and it's what we've guided our company on, is that we really are seeing a market segmentation um, in the high net worth and and some of the foundations, but predominantly in the high net worth and family office. I, I would say that the that the that the sound bite is your money can do more, and in the institutions, the sound bite is that it's all about risk, and it's all about opportunity. And, and those language bases are fundamentally different. And so if you look at it, institutions have been looking at renewable energy. They've been looking at how do they play within a low carbon future. They've been asking that if, in fact, we move to stranded assets and to a low carbon future, what assets don't I want to be uh, straddled with? They've been asking the question of uh, drought and water. Uh, pricing and exposure and what are the implications of that for my portfolio. They've been asking that if in fact climate change does fundamentally change weather performance on their physical assets, how should they be thinking about that, protecting themselves or in fact shifting their asset portfolios. So, So the framing is I think very, very different. That being said, uh, you know, it just about shocked me when I was with one of the largest Northern European pensions about six months ago. And this was the, uh, the portfolio manager that ran their real estate portfolio, which is among one of the largest real estate portfolios in the world. And, and after we got done talking about workforce housing and the opportunity set in workforce housing for a core plus strategy, he, he turned to me and said, Boy, that makes a lot of sense. Demographics are in the right direction. Stability of the assets in the right direction. By the way, do you think this counts as impact investing? (laughs) First of all, I didn't expect him to use that vocabulary. And the second thing was when he asked that question, you could see clearly that he was not asking it from a negative connotation. He really was asking, hey, do you think this is impact investing? And I said, well, yeah, of course it is. Okay. Because, you know, this is a major, major societal issue and, and it has huge societal impact. And, and it, it's the classic example. I think it's a sound asset. It's got sound risk characteristics and it actually has a very, very significant impact on our communities. And, and his answer was responsible with a big old smile and, and uh, that's great. You know, I get brownie points for that. Well, that brown, the brownie points is what I was going to get at. So he's got some kind of mandate, you think, to, to, to do a certain amount of impact investing. Some of these funds have, you know, carve outs or mandates in, in that in that direction. No. 
you know, the Northern Europeans don't really uh, use carve-outs and mandates. In general, a lot of them have these very broad, sweeping sustainability uh, elements built into their protocol. What they do have is the flexibility to sort of dial it up or dial it down, depending on the maturity of the portfolio and the maturity of their thinking in that asset class. So the funny thing is, I don't think he was asking me, does it count as impact investing as a hey, I've got a bucket that I need to fill as much as uh, I think that he probably has an overall set of objectives that this adds to. Well, okay, so it's it's interesting. I, you, you mentioned New York Common, and I, I remember that one as well, where they had, as you say, Mercer do a study of the risk exposure they had on climate, and they made a few moves in that direction, low carbon indexes, and I think a, some kind of innovation, climate innovation funding and whatnot. But they have most of their, I think, as I recall, around 85 billion that wasn't wasn't covered by that. So they hedged themselves, but they didn't seem like they were going all in on on whatever that belief system was that said there might be some climate risk in the portfolio. You know, I'm not familiar enough with with the details of what New York Common is doing to be able to comment on that. Um, Smart guy. Um, But okay, let's make it more general. If you believe that, and you mentioned stranded assets, if you believe that uh, there may come a time when those that oil or in the, and certainly that coal in the ground may not be able to be um, uh, drilled or, or mined or burned, then uh, isn't that almost a binary belief system? And you would get, you know, you know, you'd get all your assets out. I mean, I mean, wouldn't they play it more aggressively than they're playing it now? Yeah, I don't agree with that. I mean, if you look at it. The investment world has a plethora of strategies for dealing with that. I'll, I'll, I'll give you the, the, the classic situation. Uh, do you get out or do you stay in so that you can actually use shareholder activism to change the policy and to change the outcome? So, so early on in this, in this process, it was divestiture. CalPERS actually fundamentally disagreed with that. Their, their belief was that we are big enough and our friends are big enough that if we want to make a change happen, uh, we're better off staying in and making a poor sustainability performer into a higher sustainability performer. I think case in point is uh, the Exxon vote from last year. Uh, it was well in excess of 60% of shareholders voted. Given the size of Exxon's uh, market cap, and uh, the holdings patterns for Exxon, you know that you had to have all of the major indexes, shareholders, uh, institutional shareholders, including the Black Rocks and the State Street Globals, as well as the CalPERS involved in that. But what was actually very, I think, instructive was that the catalyst for that, I believe, was the church commissioners, which was the Church of England's pension plan, that actually catalyzed that activity, or it was CPG, uh, Church Pension Group out of New York. So, so I, I need to fact check that, but it was actually a relatively smaller pension that catalyzed the larger pensions and the larger institutional holders to take action. Returns on investment is supported by Wonder Capital, an easy way to invest in solar energy projects across the U.S. 
Wonders investors have financed solar projects that offset nearly 75 million pounds of carbon dioxide emissions each year. Visit wondercapital.com ROI to find out how you can invest in solar and earn up to 7.5% per year. That's wonder with a U. Wonder Capital. Okay, so let's let's bring it back to how these pension funds and then also sovereign wealth funds as I want to get to as well, but pension funds as now engaged shareholders as as you say interested um, in in strategies that take into account these kind of let's call them impact themes um, both both across environment and also social social inclusion or social social equity uh, income inequality are they are they as keen on that as they are on 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 climate yeah i mean i i think you have to develop you have to uh divide the 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 issue of social into two components one is increasingly and i'll put it under the quotation the license to operate and the social license to operate as much as uh, are you directly impacting social and environmental issues but but increasingly you know we're becoming very very aware of things like diversity the strength of a company's performance based on diversity of executives, of employee base, and of the board of directors. But I also want to get back to that first point, which is the right to operate. And increasingly, your right to have a license to, whether it's probably the most dramatic case, would be mining companies. Uh, If you're not environmentally uh, aware and if you're not putting in the mechanism to mine with the community in mind, uh, you may not be granted the license to mine. To many purists uh, in this area, um, you know, mining is just a bad thing overall. But I'd like to remind folks that that uh, if you like driving your cars and if you like using an iPhone with lithium in it, uh, mining is here to stay. And even that has to be made more sustainable, uh, more community uh, integrated. And we're now watching the growth of movements, uh, even within the mining industry, to self-police itself, to uh, adopt more sustainable patterns. I think we saw this in, in, in the evolution of the forestry industry. So increasingly, it's not just the simple environmental issues. It's now also community and society increasingly is, is part of your ability to be a, a thriving, growing uh, company. Now you've told me that you know in the in the early days you know you'd you'd raise these kind of issues and you'd get you know they they try to send you down the hall to the to the CSR department or the the foundation or something and and say you know that's all very nice you know come back when you've got a real investment uh, thesis for us that's I imagine that's not happening anymore. Yeah, I mean truthfully, five years ago I think we had to work extremely hard uh, to to just cross uh, the issue that sustainability was actually fundamentally an economic shift. It was either a economic advantage, it was a competitive advantage, uh, it was a process advantage, and that was really the first stop in our conversation. Today, I would tell you that um, there probably are very few sophisticated CIOs and PMs that we need to work that hard anymore to get an appointment. And probably one of the first things they want to talk about are things like sustainable agriculture, water threats and water opportunities. 
even within their real estate portfolio, and most of the major institutions literally have tens of billions of dollars of real estate exposure, either through funds or through direct holdings. And almost immediately, they're going to ask you questions about green real estate. When we rolled out the first green real estate fund in 2009, I'd say that eight out of 10 folks gave us reasonably blank stares. And now they're pressing you for sustainability metrics, uh, environmental performance metrics, other kinds of, of reporting, right? You're not telling them. You're, 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 you're under the gun now to, to prove that you're really doing what you're saying, right? Yeah, and, and in fact, we just issued out, uh, after about a year's worth of work uh, and, and thinking about this, our 2.0 framework for uh, sustainability metrics, both uh, operational uh, both portfolio monitoring, but also uh, integrating that into our due diligence. The, the primary thing that we had to deal with was now that people are taking it seriously, um, the number of standards that are arising that, uh, that are being put forward as potential frameworks to use, I mean, it's just growing. And, and, and some of them have been around for a long time, but not really taken all that seriously. And today we're getting a tremendous amount of pressure. So our 2.0 framework was in some ways a defensive posture to say, what do we really believe in? What standards do we actually have to uh, build into our, uh, into our thinking? Because we think that they actually do a good job of helping us make better asset management decisions. Well, this is a, this is a, this is a theme that we've been hammering on in Impact Alpha, which is that this kind of uh, measurement and an impact management is not some tick the box for some donor that wants to, you know, be able to toot their horn. This is actually part of finding out whether you're really on your on your strategy, right? Yeah, I mean, I would say in a somewhat cynical way that 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 five, six, seven years ago, the idea of metrics was used more as a reason not to invest hey, if there are no metrics, I can't possibly uh, see this, to now I think it's a much more nuanced and sophisticated use of metrics, especially by the institutions. And I think the institutions are leading this here as well. You know, APG and several of the Northern European uh, pensions were on the leading edge of, for example, defining uh, Gresby in the real estate area. And increasingly, they came to the conclusion that these were asset uh, criteria that they believed gave them a better portfolio. And if you were no longer, if you were an asset manager and were not interested in, in Gresby, they might view that as the fact that there is not a investor, a GPLP alignment of interests. And, and so, so it's a much, much more nuanced and I, I think sophisticated understanding of how to use these these metrics and monitoring. Let's just take this to what it means now for uh, managers and firms like your own. There is now demand, it sounds like, from big institutional investors to find strategies that take in, into account all of these factors we've just been talking about. So the demand is now coming from the big institutional pools of capital. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, I mean, I think that two or three things are happening. One is that uh, ESG, as a barometer of both their protocol and a barometer of, of potential quality of the asset, is, is being used as a overall screen. 
the second thing is that that these pensions and sovereigns are looking for strategies specifically that take advantage of these sustainability oriented themes or threats and allow them to play that 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 strategy. Well, so that's what I want to get to. So now if there's demand there, does that also then increase the supply? Because all the fund managers now are scrambling to make sure that they're attractive to those big institutional investors. So I think that's also a big shift that's taken place in this industry is that you're seeing uh, a wave of what I would call um, institutional quality strategies and institutional scale. Uh, and the reality is that in most of the institutions, they have to be writing 50 to 100 to 200 million dollar checks just from an economy of scale standpoint and so up until recently most strategies really couldn't accommodate that kind of capital and frankly many of the strategies were not of the set of expectations that institutions need they need a track record they need multi years of performance they do need the scale so they can deploy enough capital. Uh, they do need some things as simple as a data room. And they need teams that bring that together. And they also need something that, that uh, many of the first generation of impact funds weren't as aware of, and that is an institutional quality back office, accounting, monitoring, reporting, compliance. And so now some of the funds and firms are at that point where they can take 100, 200, $250 million checks from these big institutional owners and, and therefore off to the races? You know, you've always had uh, a small handful of fund managers that were able to develop uh, strategies and uh, funds that were of that scale. But we're seeing the next wave of market entrance uh, uh, in that. We're also watching each of the large platform players, whether it's BlackRock, whether it's Goldman Sachs, Credit Suisse, Morgan Stanley, BNP Paribas, uh, all are have been in the process of uh, expanding their platforms, their product offerings, and, uh, and by definition, the products that they will put onto their platforms are quote-unquote institutional scale and institutional quality. In this whole conversation, Dave, I haven't ever given you the chance to actually introduce Equilibrium itself, and you've got some fascinating strategies. Well, thanks for that opportunity. We built this firm on real assets, uh, which we thought were massive categories that uh, in the alt-asset category that uh, would see large inflows of capital, strong growth, but they were also just by, by nature, huge, huge opportunity sets that we thought were underrepresented with institutional capital and institutional management. But more importantly, we saw that they could have a direct, uh, if you saw a sustainability driven opportunity or advantage, we saw real assets as a wonderful category to express those advantages and directly accrue the alpha to our, our, our portfolio and to our investors. So, we built three uh, primary portfolios, one in green real estate, the second one in sustainable agriculture and food, and then the third in renewable resources, specifically water and energy. 
And we've been doing that for the last few years. Our job is to continue to roll out and develop new strategies that are growable to institutional scale and, uh, and that have uh, sustainability as an alpha driver. And uh, we continue to do that. Sustainability as an alpha driver always causes me to want you to say the phrase. Come for the return, stay for the impact. No, that wasn't what I was reaching for. It was impact alpha. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, Dave, you've been a great guide. I'm looking forward to more conversations and you're going to actually help us engage some of these institutional uh, players and others um, and uh, and help guide our listeners as well through some of these issues that we've we've just touched on today. So I thank you very much for your years of, of friendship and I look forward to uh, some great conversations to come. Thank you so much. That's going to do it for this episode of Returns on Investment. Thanks to Dave Chen and David Bank for that fascinating conversation. Special thanks as always to our technical producer, Isaac Silk. Thank you, Isaac. This podcast has been a production of Impact Alpha. Be sure to sign up for Impact Alpha's newsletter, The Brief, providing daily news and actionable intelligence for the growing number of people working to build an inclusive, resilient, and prosperous future. From New York, I'm Brian Walsh. Thanks so much for listening to Returns on Investment. Investment.